everybody, and welcome back to Work at Life. I'm Maddie Grant, culture designer at Propel, and I'm here with Sonia Lucina, my lovely co-host, president of Workforce at Question Pro. And we have a special guest today. His name is Jamie Notter, and he's particularly special to me as my life partner and business partner. But Jamie is here because he is an expert in conflict management. And that is the topic that we have for this week, which is very exciting. So Jamie, um, let me kick it over to you to give an actual proper introduction to yourself and your background. Um, and then Sonia will start off our conversation. Yeah, so I am excited, uh, honored to have been finally <clears throat> in, uh, invited to this podcast, uh, but I'm excited to be here. Uh, my original background is in the field of conflict resolution. I actually got my master's degree in conflict analysis and resolution uh, 30 years ago, which is hard to believe, um, and spent the first um, six or seven years of my career doing international uh, conflict resolution work. Did a lot of work on the island of Cyprus uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean that has had conflict for years and years and years. And um, I eventually transitioned into doing organizational work. Uh, and initially, a lot of that was dealing with, with, with conflict in organizations. And even though uh, as you know, our focus is on workplace culture right now. Uh, conflict still comes up uh, repeatedly in, in, in almost every client we work with. That's right. Great. Thank you for that background, Jamie. And I um, really enjoy the data that you shared with us prior to the show. So, so I'll jump into some of the statistics um, and then definitely pick your brain some more on, on the interpretation and the applications. So in the data that you shared, um, you had asked um, 3,500 executives which types of conflict have the biggest negative impact on results. So this is huge for culture, huge for business. Um, and in the results, 23% said that it was retreating to work within silos rather than dealing with others um, from other teams. 23% also said miscommunication that leads to disappointing results. The next highest was 19% lack of direction or disagreements over where to go strategically. 12% um, said unresolved tension around diversity, inclusion, and equity issues. And I know we talked about this one being particularly interesting. Um, another 12% said overt conflict within or across teams. 9% said lots of complaining about other people, but very little problem solving. And then only 2% said other. So most of the conflict um, reasons that have the biggest, biggest negative impact and results you actually covered in, in the different options. And we were saying we know right now we're, we're keeping our podcast to about 20 minutes or so, and this could be a conversation for a few hours. So um, wanted to ask you when you saw these, when you when you saw these percentages come back, what really jumped out at you? What was particularly surprising? What's different? What do you think are some things that are really important for organizations to to address right now? Yeah, well, I, to to some extent, some of this wasn't surprising in that silos have been an issue forever, and miscommunication has been an issue forever, and. Um, I, I, I expected things like that to be on the list. Uh, I don't know that, that, that silos would have been sort of number one all the time. And I think my, and this is just a hypothesis, I don't have additional data to back it up, but 
I think that's got some that's pandemic related. I think that's the force to being the force to having everyone work remotely when they didn't before makes it easier for you to just tune out your colleagues. You know what I mean? It makes it easier for you to just sort of, let me just get my work done. Let me just focus on this. Let me not have another Zoom meeting. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Which, and and that lack, it sort of relates. I mean, if you look at just the top two, that's almost half at 46%, right? Which is communication in silos. And I think, I think, again, that's, that's been an issue long before uh, the pandemic in, in, in the, the culture assessment work that, that Maddie and I do, that sort of collaborative group thing shows up as a problem, like almost in all, you know, in most organizations. Um, but I think it's definitely exacerbated by the pandemic. It's made it easier for us to shut down. And when you shut down and don't communicate, then the other party makes up what you're thinking. And that doesn't usually end well. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. And what do you think for organizations? And I think that a lot of people went back to the office. A lot of companies and organizations are still thinking about, you know, if they have the ability to have the flexibility, how much flexibility do they provide? Um, what it, what would be some strategies if, if an organization is doing an internal survey and wondering, you know, how big of a challenge is this for my particular organization what would be some things they could maybe do preemptively to say, let's, let's say, you know, almost quarter of the organization saying that this is the biggest challenge. Let's assume maybe it's as big of a challenge, maybe a slightly smaller in your own organization. What could you start doing today to make sure that people aren't as siloed? And again, like for organizations that are deciding that working from home is still okay, at least to some extent that this doesn't carry into the next year and carry that we don't carry it with us outside of the pandemic as well. I mean, what I see in organizations right now um, is that they're not taking advantage of the fact that there are ways to cross over those silo lines and build relationships virtually. That is maybe not about the actual meeting where you actually get the work done. You know what I mean? Like we've mastered how to have Zoom or Teams meetings and get stuff done. Like productivity has gone up. Um, what we're not paying attention to are things that, that we used to do relatively naturally in the office, which is get to know someone, find out what, what they're working on, uh, have random conversations in the kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those relationships go a long way in diffusing what now become the conflicts that people are com- complaining about. And there are plenty of ways to, I mean, I, we suggested this to an organization last fall create a, a Zoom appointment called lunch. And anyone who's there can get on that channel or that whatever it is, and or you can even do it on Slack or something, you know, text-based. And just, if you're having lunch, you can just say, hey, I'm having lunch, who's here? And just talk to people. Like it feels maybe unnatural, but it's actually no less natural than doing it in person. We're just doing it online. Um, and there are so many ways to create those opportunities like someone just, one of our clients just added a, um, a to-do list now. When they send out meeting invites, they add a list of optional invitations to people from other departments. So if you want to know what we're doing in our department, you can come to this meeting. Like that's partially task-based, but it's mostly a relationship or breaking down the silo things. Like I just don't know what the meetings department does and I'd like to know and I have a free 30 minutes. I'm going to go sit on that meeting. But that required that proactive step, right, of saying, of creating the optional invite list. 
without it, everyone just stays in their lanes and, and doesn't do it. So I think there's, there's tons of ways to use the virtual technology to build relationships and break those silo lines. We just, we just don't know. We haven't thought about doing. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, as I think through it, the first, and I don't know if this is like the scientist in me, but I'm thinking like, who takes responsibility for that? Because one of the downsides I've seen in organizations is somebody will hear that maybe in a podcast like ours and say, ah, oh, that's a brilliant idea. And then walk away, nothing happens, right? Um, is there like, and I, I can think of it like so many different ways that, you know, when you talk about setting different cultural standards, even things like vulnerability, it's really good for it to happen top down because if leaders open up, other people will too. Um, but it doesn't have to be dependent on the leader. It could be grassroots. It could go from bottom up. But when you're thinking about maybe that it's a cultural change, maybe we're saying, listen, we want people to connect more effectively. But for that to really happen, we need to be intentional about it. We can hope that it's going to happen organically, but know a lot of times like these bigger kinds of shifts, unfortunately, even with the best intentions, don't necessarily happen. Like when you've seen this happen effectively in organizations, is it maybe just some champions? It doesn't matter what department they're in. Is it usually driven by an HR department or a culture department? Like what are even, you know, if you've seen examples or even if not for companies, you know, maybe this is a newer concept. Where do you think would be a good starting point? Well, I think uh, ultimately, and this is true, I think about culture change in general, but but um, it's a bit of a both hand in terms of intentional and organic and also in terms of leadership versus sort of rank and file staff. Um, the it's obviously important for leaders to model the behaviors that you want inside the culture. If they do the opposite, people are, even if you say that uh, you say you want A, but you, the leaders do B, everyone's going to do B, right? So that's critical. Um, but we've seen a lot of success uh, of people at every level of management um, simply taking the initiative to do something differently. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I joke all the time or not joke, but it's because it's true in, in the book that Maddie and I wrote when millennials take over the last chapter is called proceed until apprehended. So our whole mantra is just go do it. But here's the trick. Someone's going to apprehend you. If you are doing something that is not normal in the culture, someone's going to stop and say, Hey, we don't do it that way. Or why are you doing it that way? And you can't waste your time with this optional meeting, right? They'll, they'll push back. So whenever you're going to do something and you're not in charge, make sure it will show results quickly, right? So it's like someone comes to you and says, I just got an optional invite. I don't even know what that is. This isn't part of our standard meeting protocol. Yeah, well, you're right, higher up than me. Um, that isn't, it isn't normal, but I've been doing it for the last six weeks. And here's what your colleague said about how useful it was. You know what I mean? Like you have to have results to show. Um, if you're going to do it and you're not in charge. Um, but I, I can attest people who are in charge love results. Okay. So, so that gets their attention. So you, you actually want to design it as an experiment that will produce something quickly so that if you do get stopped, you've got something to go back to them. with. And then again, standard less standard advice for the leaders. If you, well, maybe not standard. I think a lot of people who are leaders now don't know how to do the informal or organic virtual stuff because that's not how they got where they are. They did it all in person. You know, again, this is a generalization. Some people have been virtual for a long time, but it's not their wheelhouse. And so if they really want to create a culture that is more supportive in an environment that's going to be more for virtual, 
the, I think they're going to have to work on building that muscle a little and using that and, and, and trying that out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I loved um, about the way you asked this question too, was the impact on results. Because I, I think that word is so key to your point to get somebody that's been successful following a certain strategy for a really long time. A lot of times it really takes something very powerful to get them to change their mind and change their strategy. Um, and especially when you're numbers and KPI driven, something like results is like, wait a minute, we do need to take a pause and really take a look at this more seriously and more closely. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I know another one that really jumped out too at 12% was unresolved tension around diversity, inclusion, and equity issues. Were yeah, you surprised to see that one? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm attributing that to today's environment where, where thankfully DE&I has, is getting more attention, right? So it is now more upfront for people, at least since what the summer of 2020, when, when <laughs> Maddie and I joke about this, when organizations were bold enough to issue a strong statement uh, that that diversity, equity, and inclusion are important things. Um, we'll have to do another podcast on whether they've actually done anything about that. But I'm going to stay out of that one for now. But yeah. it, it it it's obviously a topic that can create that can elicit strong feelings. And so, if that topic is around, then I expect that to to be, um, you know, the spark that, that ignites some conflict. So I, 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 I doubt that would have been 12% three years ago would be my guess. Cause it wasn't as upfront for people. Um, but I think it's, it's not surprising me that right now that's, that's, that's what's, that's, what's coming up. Although I will say maybe I'm pleased in a sense to your point that we asked what's having an impact on results. And they're they're getting that the fact that we have unresolved tension around this stuff is getting in the way of results. That's actually important. You know what I mean? I'm glad people are at least seeing that. Yeah. And I'm curious um, if you do this longitudinally, what this is going to look like. Like a part of me, the optimist in me, hopes that this will start to go down because more organizations are paying attention to it. Um, the skeptic in me kind of wonders like the more different issues we bring up and the more like some of the underlying reasons we see for conflict um is this maybe going to raise awareness because i think that the point that you made around um importance placed on it how much headspace it gets how much it's talked about that it's not the case that this wasn't important before it just we weren't as open about it we weren't discussing it as effectively um and so to see like where do we go in the future because all I, th I think everyone agrees we're far from having solved you know diversity and inclusion equity issues but are, are we uncovering more challenges than we're effectively solving for or are we actually solving you know for things more effectively than we're uncovering i don't know well i so i mean there's there's i guess two angles to this one is all of these things, the fact that we have unresolved tension around our differences, the fact that we have silos that are competing with each other and not collaborating well, like the fact that we're not good at communicating with each other and it leads to bad results. All of these things improve when, you're, when your employees are skilled at handling conflict, right? The, the, the challenge with conflict is not that it exists. Conflict is by, by definition part of every human system. The challenge is we avoid it when it shows up. And when we avoid it, it gets worse. 
And the organizations that have cultures where as soon as you get that email that rubs you the wrong way, you call the person on the phone or you get on a Zoom call now. Mm-hmm. See how old I am? Like, call the phone. Who does that? <laughs> you get on a Zoom call and you say, hey, that way you said that in that email rubbed me the wrong way. I want to talk about it. And you just handle it right there when it's easy. But most don't. Most get mad about that. Then they go tell their colleague in the, in, that they're close to about what, how annoying Sonia was when she sent me that email. And then we have this whole conversation. And then I'm mad. And then I see you in another meeting and you say something. I'm like, there she goes again. Of course, I'm just misinterpreting it. But we create all these stories and it makes it worse. So to your point, there's always going to be another topic that's going to create conflict if it's not diversity or if it's not silos. Um, so the base is having people who are actually see conflict as an opportunity to solve a problem and move forward. So I don't run away from it. I run towards it. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I was actually uh, thinking about this the whole time we've been talking um, because almost all of these data points, these results are sort of passive aggressive or they're, they're kind of, that's my completely unscientific term. Sorry, Sonia. <laughs> Um, But they're sort of in the background, right? So miscommunication, lack of direction, unresolved tension, you know, complaining. The only one that's direct is the one that says overt conflict. But everything else is kind of what you're describing. It's sort of grumbling in the background. And some is much more serious potentially than others, of course. But the idea seems to be that if, if the team, the organization, the staff has sort of the the skills to actually talk about it and bring it up and deal with it. You know, when it comes up, then it can be um, fixed. You know, much much more quickly, as opposed to waiting until it literally impacts results, which is what we were asking about in the survey. Well, and I know this this goes a little bit off topic and sort of into the diversity thing, but this is also part of our current research and practice around DEI, which is to be successful in that, you actually have to build other capacities, like being able to have conflict, and frankly, like being able to deal with silos. There's no way you're going to do the organizational change that's required to do true inclusion and true equity, equity work if your silos can't get along. You know what I mean? Like you'll try, but you're going to fall short. Um, and so conflict is one of those root sort of foundations that you have to build to do a lot of things and, and definitely to do the diversity work. Yeah. And I, I always think about relationships and talk about that so much. And that's why it was looping me back to the earlier part of our conversation where it's that particularly creating relationships with those who have different backgrounds and you think about, you know, things differently, had maybe a different upbringing, like you give people benefit of the doubt a lot more when you have a personal relationship with them, you're much less likely to jump to a conclusion. And to me, like, um, even as a psychologist, it's something that I worked on for a really long time because I, when I was younger, before I knew better, I was definitely the reactor, like an email comes in and I'm like, oh, angry, like, or like, I'm going to answer. And I'm like, no, like, um, but again, like, I've even, taught like, myself no, to wait 24 hours before I you go. got to like, I still slip sometimes, sometimes a lot less than, <laughs> a lot less than before, um, I have to admit, but 
I think that like when I know someone, it, it's not that it doesn't happen. It, it's not that that initial reaction, if I see something that I don't agree with or don't understand is not there, but my next intuition is to wonder why instead of jumping to a conclusion that was something that was ill-informed or ill-intentioned, I would think, well, I really like Maddie. I really like Jamie. If they're saying something that I don't agree with, I wonder where that's coming from. So my response to it will be different. Um, and I think that's why, like, when we go back to how do we form culture, how do we get to know people, that that is like a big natural way um, to try to like deal with conflict a little more effectively. And again, like difference in opinion is not necessarily conflict. It's more how you react to it and the reasoning behind it, et cetera. So there, there is this like underlying human need for connection. And then how do we best handle that in organizations, I think is it becomes more and more critical over time with, with factors like these. Well, actually, I, I would say what you're raising is not even, it's, it's not even just like that you like someone or that you know them really well. It's about, do you, do you trust them? Right? Like True. trust is the, is the foundation below conflict. <laughs> um, without trust, I can't be vulnerable with you and therefore I'm not going to have my conflict. Um, and so that effort to build trust uh, is usually like that core piece. That to me, that I, you can, I call that relationship building because it is, um, but it's sort of more fundamentally trust building. Yeah, Jamie, that's really intense. Um, and there is so much more to talk about. But I think on that note, we're at time. So we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, and Yes, and uh, welcome to Work at Life, and we'll hope to have you back soon. Thanks, everybody. Yeah.